Welcome, I'm Pastor Abraham, and I want to thank you for tuning in to Sun Valley Podcast. You can check out our church on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube for worship thoughts, devotionals, and the latest events happening at our church. We hope you are blessed by this week's message. Good morning. Welcome to Sun Valley, where we believe in growing faith, building community, and the hope of Jesus. Let's try the last one a little, a little louder. We believe in growing faith, building community, and the hope of... Yes, much better. <laughs> um, I, if you guys noticed, maybe last week, uh, Alyssa and I weren't here. We were on uh, vacation, but we are back now, and we are definitely glad to be, to be home. We had a, a great time exploring Disneyland. Uh, that was my first time in Disneyland, so that was fun. Um, we went on a couple of rides, as recommended. I didn't get sick. It was all right. Um, I didn't cry. I wanted to. We went on the Pirates of the Caribbean ride, and Alyssa's like, oh, don't worry. This ride is just like a circle. It's so slow. And then there were dips, and I was like, oh, dear God. <laughs> I wasn't ready. Um, but it was a fun time. I did. I did. I did. I prayed very hard. Um, no, today we are continuing on in our series called The Greatest Story, The Unexpected Narrative of Jesus. And, and I know some of you are, are joining us for the very first time throughout this series, so we just want to let you know uh, that this, this is a series that uh, is very close to my heart. I really love um, this series because it's, it's a series where we're going through some of the major and minor stories of the Bible, all the way from Genesis to Revelation. And, and I love this series because as we journey through these books, Uh, of the Bible, we discover through these stories that there is this love, this love of Jesus that is so all-encompassing and and radically inclusive. And so radically inclusive that it often and, and unexpectedly goes against all forms of expectations. And so last time in our series, how we finished off the book of Ezra, And we learned a bit about the second wave of exiles that returned from Babylon to uh, Jerusalem. And and Ezra was this Levite priest who was this teacher of the law. And so he goes back to teach the law of God to these uh, exiles who had returned. And so we talked about how, how God often, when we follow in his purpose, will take care of the resources that we need to follow in our calling. And we talked about how God will prove himself when we make room for God to prove himself. And we talked about how, how God wants compassion, and this was the big one uh, the last time we, we met. We talked about how God wants compassion, love, and mercy over religious zealotry. God prioritizes love and mercy. And so this week, we're going to be exploring the story of Nehemiah, found in the book of Nehemiah, the, the same name. And, and Nehemiah is this, is this leader that led the third wave of, of exiles back to Jerusalem. And this, place just, this takes place just about 10 years after uh, Ezra's second wave. So Ezra comes back and he teaches the law, and then 10 years later, approximately, Nehemiah leads this other group, the third wave of Israelites, to return from, from Babylon to Judah, and they, and they uh, are rebuilding this, these temple walls, or these, uh, the city walls. And so what happens in this story in chapter 1 is that some people actually return from Judah, 
Um, they, they come back from Judah from the second wave, and, and Nehemiah asks them, he proceeds to ask them how the surviving exiles are doing or are faring in Jerusalem, because he doesn't really know much, he hasn't heard too much word. And, and unfortunately, in, in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 3, we'll read this, and so it'll be available on the screen for you uh, if you want to follow along with us. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 3, we're reading the NIV, and it says this, They said to me, these are the people that have returned, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, this is Nehemiah speaking, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ears be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. Nehemiah continues, I confess the sins that we Israelites, including myself, and my father's family have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws that you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, where you said, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizons, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place that I have chosen as a dwelling place for my name. Verse 10, they are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. And the chapter ends, I was cupbearer to the king. See, Nehemiah was determined to go before the king of Persia to, to help in this regard that he had heard. He noticed, he, or he's been told that the walls of Jerusalem are, are completely crumbled, that they've been burned with fire. And so he feels this burden uh, in his heart to do something about these people. And we're not going to read what happens in chapter 2, but, but Nehemiah ends up being given this opportunity to speak his mind before the king. And he expresses his concern for Jerusalem and for his people. And Nehemiah asks, and remember, Nehemiah is cupbearer to the king. He's a servant. He's not in the position to be making demands. He's not in the position to be asking favors from a king. But he asks, nevertheless, for time off to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. But not only that, he also asks for a letter of safe passage and letters allowing him to use wood from the royal park to rebuild the gates, the walls, and a house for himself. He's in Jerusalem. Nehemiah is bold. And the story says that because the gracious hand of the Lord was on him, the king was favorable to his request. If you read in, in chapter 2, you'll notice again these same words that are repeated in the book of Ezra, and, and they're repeated again later on in Nehemiah. Remember, Ezra and Nehemiah were originally one book. They weren't separate books. So you'll see this phrase repeated consistently throughout the same book, the hand of the Lord was on me. Though this whole book emphasizes this point that God's hand works through the systems around us, often in, in, in unexpected and surprising ways to support the purpose that he is calling us towards. 
Now, something you might notice in, in chapter 1, uh, and, and something you, you'll notice as we read throughout the story, is that Nehemiah does one thing often when he encounters a problem. When he encounters a problem, he goes to his one go-to action, his one go-to thing, and, and, and his thing is prayer. Whenever Nehemiah encounters a problem, he goes on to pray. And later, we're going to see this later, when, when the people oppose him, when they try frustrating the work that he's doing, the first thing he does is turn to God in prayer. When the people set up traps for him, when they spread false rumors about him, when they try to trick him into stopping the work, Nehemiah simply turns to God in prayer. And when Nehemiah hears about the trouble that the exiles are experiencing in Jerusalem, what does he do? He weeps, he mourns, he laments. He fasts, but he also prays. See, Nehemiah is not content with feelings of pity. He is not content with feelings of sympathy or empathy. He feels the need to actually act and do something, and so he turns to God in prayer. And this is our first lesson for today. Our first lesson is this. Let pain lead you to prayer and action. Let pain lead you to prayer and action. You see, Nehemiah was pained. He felt hurt. He felt sorrow for what his people were experiencing in Jerusalem. But he wasn't content to simply just say, oh, I'll, I'll pray for them. He wasn't content by just getting down on his knees, God, please do something for these people. He specifically prayed that God would bless his actions. Nehemiah was determined to act on their behalf, and his prayer was not a prayer that God would do something. Rather, his prayer was a prayer that God would help him do something. Do you guys see the difference? He wasn't praying that God would do something. He was praying that God would help him do something. When we see and experience pain and suffering in our lives and in the world around us, how do we respond? Empathy is a good starting point. It is. Sorrow is a good starting point. Prayer is a good starting point. But what does it lead us to? Praying for people in far-off countries is, is great. Praying for the people suffering in our community is a good thing. Praying for our friends and our family when they are experiencing hard times is something God definitely calls us to. Absolutely, God calls us to go to Him in prayer in absolutely everything we do. But is prayer the only thing that we're doing? Right? Is prayer the only thing that we're doing? Yes. God is able to do incredible things. Yes, God is able to do miraculous things. Yes, God comes through. God answers our prayers. But if you read the Bible carefully, you will find that God's preferred method of action isn't miracles, but humanity. If you read the story of the Bible, you'll find that God's preferred method of re relieving the suffering, God's preferred method of, of, of fixing the injustice, God's preferred method of helping people out is through other people. God can do supernatural wonders. Yes, he can, but God prefers to use you. Prayer is great, but don't just pray that God would do something. Pray that God would help you do something. Let pain lead you to prayer and to action. And, and I know there are a million different things that are happening in the world all at once. 
right? There's, there's sex trafficking happening in our very own backyard. There's drug and alcohol abuse. There are people living homeless on the street. There are people facing danger from criminal and terror organizations all over the world. There are people starving in far-off countries and in our own backyard. There are people uh, who, who are facing so many different problems in their life. There's climate change and the responsibility to be, uh, to be responsible with, with, with what we do and, and how we consume products and worrying about all that other stuff. There's racism. There's sexism. There's all these different things to tackle in the world, and it can be overwhelming when you're thinking about how can I solve all of these problems? What can I do about absolutely everything? There's so many different problems in the world around us, it can be overwhelming. And you might think, I can't possibly commit myself to doing something about everything. And you're right. You can't do everything. And you shouldn't be expected to. God doesn't expect you to single-handedly solve every problem of injustice in the world. He doesn't expect you to deal with everything all at once or to even deal with everything in your lifetime. You're not expected to do everything. Listen, you are expected to do something. Did you guys hear that? You're not expected to do everything, but you're expected to do something. You may not have the power or the influence to single-handedly change the entire world, but you can make small impacts in the world around you. You can choose to impact the person next to you. You can choose to make a difference in just one person's life during one moment, during one time. It is easy to be overwhelmed by the feeling that you have to care about absolutely everything all at once, and we should care about all things, but don't let that overwhelm you into doing nothing. Don't let pain overwhelm you into doing nothing. Don't let pain drive you into submission and complacency. Instead, let pain lead you to prayer and to action. So in chapter 2, after the, the, the king approves Nehemiah's request, Nehemiah heads to Jerusalem, and, and once he goes there, he inspects the ruins of the city walls, and this is Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 17. It says this, Then I, I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me, and what the king had said to me, and they replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. Nehemiah chapter 3, starting verse 1. You guys know how much I love these names, so we're going to read them. Chapter 3, verse 1. Eliashib, the high priest and his fellow priests, went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zakur, son of Imri, built next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of, sounds interesting, Hasanan. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakoz, repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshulam, son of Barakiah, the son of Meshezabel, made repairs. And next to him, Sadak, son of Baana, also made repairs. We're getting somewhere, don't worry. <laughs> The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to work under their supervisors. Uh, the Jeshana gate was repaired by Joida, son of uh, Paseah, and Meshulam, son of Besodea. They laid its beams and put its doors with its bolts and bars in place. Next to them, repairs were made by men from Gibeon and Mizpah, Melatiah and Gibeon and Jadon of Maranoth, places under the authority of the governor of Trans-Euphrates, 
Uziel, son of Harayas, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section, and Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Raphaiah, son of Hur, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section. Adjoining this, Jediah, son of Harumap, is that how you say it? Harumap? Made repairs opposite his house. And Hattush, son of Hashbniah, made repairs next to him. Malkijah, son of Harim, and Hashub, son of Pahath Moab, repaired uh, another section and the tower of the ovens. Shalom, son of Halohesh, ruler of the district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. You might read this in chapter 3 and be like, who cares? <laughs> I read this, I was reading Nehemiah a couple months ago, and I was like, okay, great, skip. <laughs> but I read it again, and, uh, and I discovered something interesting that I really, really liked, and this is one of our second lessons today, but there are many people, different people, participating in rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And it doesn't list everybody's professions, but it lists some. And so we can assume that, that everyone who is building, rebuilding the walls come from a variety of different walks of life, uh, different, different trades and different works. They're all helping with the construction. Some of them that it lists were priests, high priests, goldsmiths, perfume makers. Some of them were rulers. Even some of the rulers' daughters were mentioned as in helping the, the, the construction. Everyone, no matter who they were, no matter what they did, no matter what their trade was, was involved in rebuilding the walls. Everyone was called to put their talents to use for the sacred work of rebuilding God's city. And this is our second lesson today. Our second lesson is this, let the sacred meet the secular. I don't know if this ever happens to you, but I feel like we have the tendency to compartmentalize the different areas of our life. Does it ever feel like that? Like we categorize aspects of our personality, of our interests, of our talents as either sacred or secular. Sacred being stuff related and directly related to God and maybe worship. Secular being stuff that maybe that's different, stuff of the world, whatever you want to call it, right? We compartmentalize the sacred and the secular in our lives. And, and, and everything is either directly having to do with God and our spirituality or not. And sometimes we become as divided as being a certain type of person or acting a certain way when we come to a church and then being completely different and acting completely entirely different when you're outside the walls of the church. We compartmentalize the sacred and the secular. And then we might take the work of the priests that we read about here in Nehemiah or that we read about in Leviticus and all these other books, the priests of Israel that are offering these sacrifices, that are ministering before the temple, that are coming before the presence of God, and their work is undoubtedly sacred. Obviously, the priests, the, what they're doing is sacred. But we might think that laying bricks... And building the wall is, is much less sacred, right? We tend to compartmentalize things. And yet, what's interesting in chapter 3 is that we find the priest and the high priest laying bricks, laying mortar, building the walls of Jerusalem, fully immersed in the construction of the temple walls. We have Nehemiah, who is a government worker, a cup bearer to the king, having the same leadership position and same respect as Ezra, a Levite, who was instructing the people and teaching them of the law of Moses and the law of God. See, Nehemiah didn't compartmentalize his job as cupbearer and his love for God in Jerusalem. In fact, he blended the two. He blended his position. He blended his secular work in the government office and, blended and mixed it with his love for Jerusalem, his love for people, his love for God. And he used his position to be able to do something about the city walls. 
And this is a minor and kind of subtle theme that extends throughout the whole book of Nehemiah. It's this idea that everything that we do, whether sacred or secular, however we want to compartmentalize it, however we want to divide it, everything we do is actually sacred. Are you guys listening so far? Everything we do is actually sacred. When we self-identify as people of God, there is nothing that we do that isn't sacred. And that's what we see when we read these portions, maybe not so fun and exciting portions of chapter 3. Whatever background they came from, whether they were priests or goldsmiths or rulers or perfume makers, whether they were men or women, and it's important that they noted women, especially in this patriarchal society, whatever gender, whatever differences, whatever trades, whatever job, whatever calling we have in our lives, we are all called to do the same sacred work of being the hands and feet of Jesus. And when we become Christ followers, our lives cease to be divided between sacred and secular. In fact, there is no secular when we become followers of Jesus. It's all sacred. The way you interact with the cashier at the grocery store is sacred. The way you interact with the people in traffic around you, this might hit some of us closer to home, is sacred. The way we play sports or board games or video games or whatever else it is that we play is sacred. The way you work with the people around you, the work ethic that we maintain and demonstrate is sacred. The way we study and learn is sacred. Everything becomes sacred when you allow God to be a part of your life. Real life change happens when we begin to let the sacred blend in with the secular portions of our life. If we want to see our world change, if we want to see God working in in the everyday kind of life, stop separating the sacred and the secular. Let the sacred meet the secular. Let everything you do be drowned and immersed in the love of Jesus. And so chapter 5, Nehemiah later is made governor of the land of Judah by King Artaxerxes, and and he does something that's unique to this position, something that hasn't been done in a long time. Nehemiah chapter 5, we're reading verse 14 here. It says this, Moreover, uh, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, I don't know why 14 isn't up there, that's my bad. Moreover, from the 20th year of, of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah until uh, his 32nd year, 12 years later, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor, but the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people, but out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Verse 16. Oh, there it is. Verse 16. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me. And every day, every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were too heavy on these people. And he says, remember me with favor, my God, for all of I have done for these people. 
Sinemaia is, is a very honorable man and he chooses not to act in ways that previous governors had acted. He is gracious, he is merciful towards the people and he makes sure that his position and the demands of his position are not a burden to the people around him. And so he prays that God will remember him with favor for the good that he has done. And then later in chapter 6, when Nehemiah faces opposition, he also responds not with harsh words or with vengeance, but he responds with prayer. And we're going to read that. Chapter 6, verse 9, it says this, they were all trying to frighten us thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was shut in at his home. And he said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple. It's a place they weren't allowed to go. And let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night they are coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away? Or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but they had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and they would give me a bad name to discredit me. And he says this, remember Tobiah and Sanballat, my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophet Noadiah and how she and the rest of the prophets had been trying to intimidate me. Again, Nehemiah says this prayer of remembrance and prays that God will remember his enemies for the evil that they've done. And, and this word, this remember, is not this word that simply means like, oh, God, please just don't forget it, as if God is prone to forget. Uh, remember the word that they're using is actually specifically a request for God to act on behalf of his people. This remember isn't, oh, please don't forget, keep, keep, keep a note of it, write it down. It's more of like, think on us and act accordingly to what we've done. And the end of the story of, of Nehemiah, or the end of our story, at least, with Nehemiah, verse 15 and 16 says this. So the wall was completed, verse 15 and 16. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul and 52 days, verse 16. When all of our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. See, Nehemiah is a man who prioritizes prayer for every aspect of his life. He doesn't take rewards or abuses his power for his own gain. He trusts that God would act for his benefit. He doesn't take vengeance or lashes, lashes out against his enemies. He trusts that God would do that for him. And this is our final lesson, our final lesson is this, let God handle rewards and punishments. Let God handle rewards and punishments. Because what God has in store for you, listen carefully, what God has in store for you is far greater than anything you could ever gain on your own. And there's no need for Nehemiah to take matters into his own hands against his enemy because the victory that God gave Israel was punishment enough. The verse says that as, as soon as the wall was rebuilt, the surrounding nations became afraid and lost their confidence to oppose the people because they saw how God had worked on their behalf despite their best efforts to frustrate and sabotage the work. And what's interesting here is that God doesn't do anything extraordinary against their enemies, but through the ordinary perseverance of the community, the work succeeds. And that's how God came through for them. God strengthened their hands. God gave them wisdom to act accordingly. God provided hope for them to keep going. And whether it's through the extraordinary or just the ordinary, God always acts in favor of his people. Let God handle rewards and punishments. 
I want to invite the band to come on up as we begin to close. The story of Nehemiah says that God's hand was on him constantly. Everything he asked for was given to him. You see, Nehemiah went from being cupbearer to the king to being cupbearer of the king to being the governor of a province in the kingdom. How drastically different is that? He went from being a servant to then leading other people. The king himself sent a military escort and materials to protect the people and to help build the walls of Jerusalem. You see, Nehemiah's dream was fulfilled. God gave him success by frustrating their enemies by rebuilding the wall in a rather short period of time. It actually didn't take long for them to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. You see, God handles rewards and punishments here in the story, and we see that he exceeds Nehemiah's expectations. He exceeds Nehemiah's expectations. And you're going to find that the world is full of heartbreak, that the world is full of pain. And wherever the pain comes from, whether the pain is from the injustice you see in the world around you, or whether the pain is from personal hurts that you experience, don't let pain cripple you. Don't let pain stop you from making an impact in the world around you. Instead, let pain lead you to prayer and to action. Do not be satisfied was simply praying from a distance, but be a part of the change that you want to see in the world, whether big or small. You don't have to solve every problem. You don't have to carry the burden of the entire world's difficulties. You don't have to do everything, but you should do something. Start somewhere. Don't just pray that God would do something. Pray that God would strengthen you to do something. And as you step into that calling that God places in your life, whatever calling it is, let the sacred meet the secular. Don't compartmentalize your life. Let the kindness and the mercy and the grace of Jesus infiltrate every part of who you are, every part of how you act, every part of how you react, every part of how you interact. Let everything you do speak to the resurrected life that Jesus has placed in each and every one of us. See real change happen in the world around you by letting the sacred weave into everything and every portion of your life. And as you make God your priority, as you make prayer your priority, as you allow the sacred and the secular to blend into each other, this one's important. Let God handle rewards and punishments. You can stop being concerned about what you get out of it. You can stop counting the cost of the love that God calls you to, because whatever God has in store for you, whatever blessing God has for you, will always be infinitely better than anything you planned for yourself. God always exceeds our expectations. God is better than our expectations. And the rewards that God has for you in this life and the next will always be better than anything you could gain on your own. And as we journey through the road that God has called us onto, The Bible doesn't promise that it will be pain-free. I'd love to say that to you, but it doesn't. It doesn't say that there won't be difficulties. It doesn't say that there won't be roadblocks, that there won't be opposition. In fact, it actually tells us, it warns us, there will be trials ahead. There will be opposition ahead. There will be people trying to frustrate the work that you are called to do. The The Bible doesn't promise that God's path is easy, but the Bible does promise this. And it promises that when you are on God's path, God goes with you. And when God is on our side, there is nothing to be worried about. 
Don't worry about the naysayers. Don't worry about the opposition that you face, the ones who put all of their effort into trying to prevent you from moving forward, whatever it is that God is calling you to. Let God handle those people. Let God strengthen your hands. This is chapter 6, verse 9. Nehemiah says this, I knew that they were trying to frustrate my plans, thinking that if we keep this up, their hands will get weak, and then the work will not be completed. But I prayed, Lord, strengthen my hands. Give me the strength to keep going forward into whatever it is that you have called you. Pray that with God. God, strengthen my hands. And this is the promise, and this is my favorite part. This is the promise that we read in Nehemiah. When we allow God to weave into every part of our life, when we allow God to handle the rewards and the punishment, this is the promise that God has for you. When all of your enemies, when everyone who opposes you, when all of your trials and difficulties and roadblocks hear about the work that God is doing, they will be afraid and lose their self-confidence because they will realize that this work has been done with the help of our You are going to face trials. You are going to face difficulties. But if you allow God to handle your rewards and punishments, if you allow God to reward you, he will bless you far greater than you could ever expect. If you allow God to deal with the people that oppose you, he will bless you to complete the work and they will lose confidence knowing that God has helped you finish this work. So whatever it is that God is calling you to, whatever action it is that God has placed on your heart, whatever pain it is that you experience that you feel God is calling you to be a part of or to, or to help fix or to contribute to a solution or something, whatever it is that God, whatever burden God is placing on your heart, let God lead you and guide you. Let him be the one that finishes the work. Let him be the one that strengthens your hands. Amen.